You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 11 on Hawaiian heritage. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'll be your host today. So today I have Regina Hila with me. Regina Kealapua Onalani Vili Meka Nuenue Hilo is a graduate of Kamehameha Schools and currently a cohort member of the MA program in Applied Anthropology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Born and raised in Kapahulu, she is a native Hawaiian archaeologist, Hawaiian language researcher and speaker, and is actively involved in community initiatives and projects and serves as the current president of the Society for Hawaiian Archaeology. Regina is employed as a burial site specialist in the history and culture branch of the State Historic Preservation Division, where she works with the division's archaeology branch staff, project proponents, and cultural descendants to mitigate potential effects to human skeletal remains under the SHPD's jurisdiction. She is one of two newly appointed student representatives for people of color on the Society for American Archaeology's Government Affairs Committee, an advisory board to the SAA's Board of Director, which recommends policy positions on specific government issues and provides archaeological expertise from the SAA membership on a wide range of issues and from various parts of the country to support archaeological interests on Capitol Hill. Regina is humbled and honored to be a recipient of the 2017 Native American Graduate Scholarship in Archaeology. Thank you for being here, Regina. My pleasure. Aloha. Ovalo Regina Kalapo Nalani Vini Mekia Minohilo, no Oahumayao, he Kanaka Oivi, he Kanaka Maoli, he Oiviao, Maikea Pai Aina. So my name is Regina and I was born and raised, I'm from Hawaii, born and raised here in the island. I currently am an MA student at the university and I also am an archaeologist, but first and foremost, I am a Hawaiian. I am born and raised at this place, and I take my responsibilities, or my kuleana, as we call it here, I take my kuleana as a Hawaiian first and foremost above all other things. Mahalo for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. (laughs) Well, I am really excited to have you. So Regina and I first talked at the SAAs in... Orlando. Um, yep. And it was just so fascinating hearing her talk about how different and also how similar the situation is mm-hmm. with indigenous and descendant communities in Hawaii from the mainland. So I really, 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 ever since I started this podcast, wanted to have Regina on here too to talk about uh, all thanks. of these issues. Yeah. yeah, we had a great conversation. It was we had so much fun. Yes, yes. <laughs> On the beach. <laughs> On the beach. I know in Orlando. <laughs> yes. <laughs> on, a, on a little fake beach, so <laughs> it was a yeah. it was a great setting. <laughs> so, 
going off of, of your intro, I want to get a little bit more into what initially brought you into this work. Because you mentioned that, that you consider yourself a native Hawaiian first and foremost. So mm-hmm. what what brought you into this field? What first got you interested? Okay, so I always am drawn back to this really silly story when I was a small, small kid in Kapuhulu. I must have been about four or five. I don't even remember what I was watching on TV, but I somehow associated things being buried as being having, like if things are buried, then they have some kind of inherent value. So I had a wad of $2 bills. Now this was like in the early 80s. Yeah. I I know, right? (laughs) I had like $2 bills. There must have been about 10 of them. And so I was like, oh, well, you know, maybe I'll make a treasure map and 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 then I'll go bury it in the backyard and then I'll dig it up. And so I That's did awesome. that. I <laughs> took like ten two dollar bills, put it in a little Ziploc bag, dug a hole in the backyard and then buried it there. And then I was like, oh, I'm sure, you know, if they're buried, then they're really valuable. <laughs> and then um, I, I think I presented either my mom or my brother and my sister with this little with this map. And my sister and my brother were like, they're younger than me. My brother and I are two years apart, and then my sister and I are three years apart. So they would have been like two and one or something like that. <laughs> so I was like, oh, let's go dig stuff up in the backyard. And so I went and I dug up, I swear, I, it probably wasn't even the, in the ground more than 24 hours. But so <laughs> I went and I dug it up, and I was like, oh, look at what I found and stuff. And so that was really the first time that I I I was conscientious of the idea of things being buried that could then, you know, like be rediscovered or, or, or whatever. But I have to say like that ran and that still runs so contrary to, to like the idea of, of, you know, not the idea, but, but what being a Hawaiian is (laughs) because we don't (laughs) go around and dig things up for value. You know, that's not what, we do, but it's not a cultural mm-hmm. practice in any way. Um, it's actually quite intrusive. But but then as I kind of got older and went through elementary school, I kind of thought, well, you know, I see the value to education and I want to I want to be a good student. But what what is applicable in education for me as a, you know, as a Hawaiian, like, do I want to go into education? Do I want to educate others? Or is there some way that I can use education to the benefit of the community? And it probably wasn't until I got into high school and was at Kamehameha and was studying Hawaiian language and playing music. Before I did archaeology, I was a very avid musician. And I started off in college, actually, as a musician. But I just kind of, I thought, oh, you know, maybe being outdoors is something that I could do as a career. Maybe I could do something like, uh, I thought geology at the time or being a vet, but I was like, no, you know, I, I can't, I can't dance as the animals suffer and stuff like that. So I was Mm -hmm. like, well, maybe I need to do something else. Then when I got to college, I quickly found out as a music major that you know, having talent was one thing, but you really had to practice and work, work hard um, to make your talent, make your talent really shine and make you more special than the other people who maybe worked hard but didn't have as much talent. 
Yeah, so that quickly wore out on me because I wasn't into practicing. I was terrible <laughs> at practicing. And then I took um I took an anthropology course, which was Introduction to Archaeology. I got a B. I was so mad. I got a B plus. <laughs> and then I was like, no, I can do better. So I went back and I took it again the next semester. It must have been, let's see, my freshman year, probably the second semester of my freshman year that I took Introduction to Archaeology again. And then the professor was like, why are you taking it again? You got a B plus. And I was like, well, because I got a B plus, that's not good enough. And so he was like, okay. And so when I took it, I, I immediately like felt a, a connection and an applicability to the things that I was learning and the value that being educated in archaeology could really bring to the community. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately for me, at the time when I was an undergraduate, there was a number of absolutely stellar graduate students who were Hawaiian that were going through the same program. Those students eventually went on to like really amazing careers. One of them is Kehau Abad, who got a PhD in anthropology, and then Kekueva Kihiloi, who currently has, he works at Hawaii Nui Akea, and he also has his PhD. He actually did his research on the Northwest Hawaiian Islands. Um, and then Kavika Tengan, who is a cultural anthropologist, went to Dartmouth and then came back and did graduate work and eventual PhD at the university. And he's currently the chair or the co-chair of the ethnic studies department. And we're all kind of around the same age. So when I saw them go through the program and, you know, some, some of the struggles that they were having being indigenous and then having to, you know, kind of exist in this world of academia, but be brown skinned. But then, you know, also be very, how could you say it, steadfast in in being a Kanaka or being a Hawaiian and having certain, like, cultural practices that you still hold true to despite or, or you know, in addition to being an academic, I've, I kind of looked at that and I said, okay, well, if they can do it, then I'm pretty sure I can do it. So that's, that's really what kept me in the fight for archaeology, so to speak. And it would really open a lot of opportunity for me in the future. And that's kind of how I feel today. I'm surrounded by people who really value our perspective and not only as, you know, Hawaiians, but as an agency involved in helping to mitigate effects to human skeletal remains or ibi kupuna as we call them. And being surrounded by mentors who who also have gone through the same struggles. And I know I mentioned Eddie earlier, Eddie Ayal. He's really one person that I was deathly afraid of um, when I was in high school because he was just this amazing person. I, I don't know. It's silly. And he's going to think it's so silly for me to even be saying this. But, um, yeah, he was just this big, you know, mentor or this big like person with this huge personality but so smart and always fighting for for more rights and for rights that you know we should always have had as native people to kind of speak about the disposition of our skeletal remains that we didn't have until mm-hmm. NAGPRA and then the state you know the Hawaii revised statutes and the administrative rules that kind of established the burials program. So 
I feel very fortunate to, after all of the struggles of, you know, my friends and my colleagues, to really be engaged still in the fight that that is who we are and that is archaeology and kind of this coexistence of culture and archaeology and tradition and indigenous knowledge. So, and it's such a great time to be alive because we are seeing more and more you know, this collaboration between indigenous knowledge and scientific inquiry. And then, you know, really the two don't, they're not mutually exclusive. They've always been inclusive. They've always been coexisting. It's just now we're kind of more cognizant that that's how things operate. Just, you know, one side is scientific or so they want to say, you know, we're more scientific because we're academic. And the other side is like, well, our cultural practices are all based on scientific observations. So it's basically mm-hmm. the same thing, but we have more culturally, like we have a culturally developed terminology and practice and protocol, whereas scientific inquiry kind of has its own set of practice and protocol. But definitely the two are, are have coexisted forever. So it's nice to be part of a conversation that acknowledges that now. Mm-hmm. Okay, wow. So there was several things that I want to touch on in that. So okay. first of all, I'm I'm just personally curious. Growing up in Hawaii, you mentioned learning Hawaiian, the Hawaiian language in high school. And I'm just mm-hmm. curious about how much integration of Hawaiian language and culture there was in school. Or whether mm, okay. it was it was pretty separate. That's the first question. <laughs> okay. And then I'm also you're talking about integrating Hawaiian perspectives and indigenous science into archaeology and in academic settings, and then now the professional settings. And just if you could talk a little bit more about what it was like trying to navigate between those two, what it's what it's like, you know, any challenges that you faced as an indigenous student, anything that made it easier, like you mentioned the mentors, and the same in the professional setting. So that was a lot all at once. (laughs) Lots of questions. Okay, so the first question um, about Hawaiian language and uh, the integration of Hawaiian language and how I came to learn Hawaiian language. So I started taking Hawaiian when I was in seventh grade. I went to a Catholic elementary school, an Episcopalian um, preschool, and at the preschool, I kind of I learned how to read and write, and even you know we were doing math as preschoolers. Wow. And I went to Catholic school, and there there wasn't really you know we didn't get real exposure to Hawaiian culture. Um, it's a, it was a Catholic all school, so very academically rigorous. In fact. The, I think the gifted and talented class that I was in, which was like seven or eight kids, we learned French and I loved French. And I was like, oh, I could, I can speak French. I would love to speak French. And like, this is amazing. And then I got into Kamehameha, which is a school for Hawaiian children in seventh grade. And I was overwhelmed with gratitude. First of all, I was just so excited because here I am, you know, this, this, I call myself a townie Hawaiian. Because my parents are squarely from town. I mean, my dad 
was like born and raised in Kaka'akal and my mom was born and raised in Nu'uanu. So these are big towns kind of within Honolulu or townships, I guess settlements, if you, if you want to call it that. They grew up in this territorial period. And I wouldn't know, actually it was my dad's like born in 1939. So he was like, you know, World War II and then my mom's mm-hmm. 1948, so kind of, well, yeah, I guess you could say territorial period where Hawaiian hadn't been spoken or hadn't been part of the educational system since about the late 1800s. It has basically been, you know, you couldn't speak Hawaiian anymore because if you did, then you were trying to, you know, counter-revolutionize and and that was kind of the, the way that it got completely eliminated from the educational system. Whereas when Hawaiians were still the monarchy, Hawaiian people were the most highly literate of pretty much any monarchy, period. I mean, we had newspapers, we had publications, we had translated the Bible from Greek, Latin, Aramaic. We had multiple translations of the Bible and granted, yes, that's totally missionary doing. But <laughs> yeah. Still, you know, it was like we we just were an amazing people. I was writing, I was creating melee, I was composing new chants and new songs. But that kind of fell by the wayside from the late 1800s all the way up to the Hawaiian Renaissance, which really came about right around the time I was born. I want to say 1977 was a big year. But I don't really know because I wasn't part of that. Not until about 1993 when we were celebrating, or I should say mourning. We were mourning the 100th anniversary overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy, the Hawaiian kingdom. And so it was kind of, you know, we we felt that we needed to kind of reclaim our language and learning Hawaiian in an institution like Kamehameha was one of the ways where, you know, we could connect, connect a little bit more with the conversationality of Hawaiian in the newspapers from the 1800s and understand more of like this kind of this huge repository of, of information that hadn't been accessible because you didn't have people or you had a very small group of people who were fluent enough in Hawaiian to understand what was what was contained in that humongous repository and so there was this massive like i want to say rebirth it really was a renaissance of hawaiian language and and i just happened to like you said i keep saying i'm really fortunate but i i feel very very fortunate to have been born in a time when that was being actively pushed and hawaiian language was like the biggest language classes at Kamehameha. And then I went on to take Hawaiian language in in high school as well. And that was really, and then I didn't take it at university. I took, I went back to French because I didn't want to take the Hawaiian language placement exam. That was really it. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to take another exam. So, and then nowadays, nowadays we have Punana Leo the Ahapunana Leo, which is this language, is basically like a language nest. That's what Ahapunana Leo means. It's literally a language nest 
which has multiple preschools and schools across the state, basically on all of the islands, I think maybe with the exception of Lanai, that teach these young two, three, four-year-olds, sometimes Ipepe is already from like six weeks old all the way up to like two, teach children about cultural practices and Hawaiian language is fully immersive. So there's no English spoken whatsoever. It's all Hawaiian. You get Hawaiian traditional practices. You know, you stand, um, you stand in a line and every morning, you know, there's protocol and you do protocol, you engage in the protocol and that kind of sets the tone of the day. They look at the, the moon phases and what would have been suitable for planting, what fishing would have been like on those moon phases. They do weather. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's really amazing to, to see the absolute variety and services that are now available to students and elementary students. Are these students. public schools? They're actually, well, some of them are like public charter mm-hmm. schools. Um, mm-hmm. And then like the Ahapunanaleo, their, their schools are, you, you have to apply and stuff. And there's a tuition you have to pay aside. Kind of saying that those are private schools. Okay. But it's, it's an educational option for your child. And it's, it's like totally amazing. That yeah. Of, yeah, the Ahab. Ahapunanaleo actually started, I want to say, 1983. I'll I'll double check on that date and get back to you, but I'm okay. pretty sure it was established in 1983, even at a time when Hawaiian wasn't acknowledged as being an official language. I don't think we we're. I don't think Hawaiian was acknowledged as an official language of Hawaii until sometime in the 90s. It was, wow. it was like you know, wow. Mm-hmm. And actually, when the Punanaleo was mobilizing. I think Uncle Larry Kimura likes to say that they were technically breaking the law because yeah. you couldn't be teaching education in Hawaiian. You weren't supposed to be doing that. Wow. So, yeah. Uh, so that's the first, sorry, see, long-winded answer. No. <laughs> that's amazing that they have those kinds of opportunities for, for yeah, Native Hawaiian actually, kids. They do have public schools. Like my daughter... My daughter went to Kekula Kayopunio Anuenue, which is a public school, which is all in Hawaiian. So, you know, you've got your own Hawaiian language standards, you have your own curriculum. And she was with that school from kindergarten all the way up to third grade. She's going to be in fourth grade this upcoming year. And she was recently accepted to Halo Kumana, which is a public charter school. Not a Hawaiian language school, but they teach basically a cultural-based curriculum and scientific inquiry, but using culturally-based standards. A really great school. And then her brothers, the brothers who are 14, they're going to be going there as well. So they'll be freshmen. But that's kind of like, you know, the how the tide of education even has changed to include Hawaiian language immersion and at the public school system. It would be nice if the public charter schools got the same amount of funding as our regular DOE public schools. I think the ratio is kind of like maybe 60% as opposed to 
the charter schools, the public charter schools get 60% of the funding that a regular DOE school gets. Um, but it is, it's an educational option for your child, which didn't exist before. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. And I've, I've already forgotten what the second question was. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, no. Well, we're actually already at our first break time. And when we come back, we will start with the other two questions. Okay, cool. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. And we are back. So the the second part of the question that we were we were just talking about was looking then at university and professional settings, and you had started talking about some of the the challenges of navigating as a Native Hawaiian student within academia, within while you were a student, and then continuing on into the professional world. And you mentioned mentors and seeing other people going through it at the same time as you being really helpful. Could you talk a little bit more about either the challenges of navigating that or the things that helped or what might help additional students in the future Mm. who are wanting to break into the field? Okay. Okay, sure. Yeah, definitely. So one of the things I like to always remind students (laughs) just students of is that academia is already difficult. Being a student, being academically rigorous is difficult. It's even more difficult if you kind of uphold a standard of excellence for yourself that goes above and beyond or or like pretty close to well even beyond uh, academic standards or academia standards, I should say, and you're indigenous. Because, and and I think most of my colleagues who are Native Hawaiian or First Nations or um, tribal, you know, Native American or a minority probably could, could say the same thing, that if you're an academic and you're indigenous, people... People traditionally look at you as being one or the other. You're either mm-hmm. academic right. or you're indigenous. Um, and then you can't exist as both within the same space. And that's been really challenging for not not so much for me because I'm still kind of, you know, I want to say I'm young in my career, but I'm really not. I've been doing this for a long time. But if you're going to be I mean, if you're going to be academically rigorous and you're indigenous, you really are opening yourself up to a different level of scrutiny. Mm -hmm. Um, Scrutiny to the sense that people will look at you and they'll be like, well, you're indigenous. So why are you trying to be academic? Or people who are academic will look at you and be like, well, your academic, your academic approach is, is good, but you know, you're a little bit too culturally sensitive on these 
these things. And so, right. you, you know, you've got to, you've, you've always got to play both sides of the coin or you've always got to explain your indigeneity to people. And mm-hmm. that's something that for me, I like, I didn't really, it didn't hit me until I think it was at the SAAs at 2016, actually. When you were talking to this redheaded girl who. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was. Okay. So I went to this, this party at, and I, I just, I wanted to hang out with my friends. That was it. I just wanted to hang out with my friends. Cause it was the one time that I see them in the year. And, and so they're like, Oh, let's go to this Mesoamerican party. And I was like, Oh my God, really? <laughs> are you guys kidding me? And they're like, no, let's go. And so I was like, okay, fine, whatever. So I had a car because I was staying with my partner's family, like down the road in central Orlando. So I had mm-hmm. a car and I took my friends and stuff to this Mesoamerican party. It was so weird, Jessica. It was so <laughs> weird. I mean, first of all, we're having this party, like this really kitschy Disney. I don't even know what it was. It was like... El Corazon or something. It was just weird. Oh. It was like an amalgamation of all of the Central Latin American cultures in like this really strange thing. And yeah, then cultural appropriation. I was like, oh my god! And I turned to my friend who was from Hawaii too. He's from Hilo, and I was like, hey, doesn't this seem a little inappropriate to you? And he's like. Yeah, good thing we didn't go to the Hawaiian <laughs> one because I'm pretty sure that Ooh. would be really weird. And so, yeah. like, no, no, you're right. Let's just stay at this one because I cannot. You know, I was just like, I can't. Right. But then somebody came up to me and they they knew that I was Hawaiian. They were like, Oh, so what? What do the Hawaiian separatists think about about Mauna Kea? And I was like, Hawaiian separatist? What? What Hawaiian separatists? What are you talking about? And and then then he goes, you know, the people who are protesting and and the ones that kind of want an independent state. And I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, Hawaiian separatists. Oh, do you mean? And then I said something in Hawaiian. I was like, do you mean Kapoe Aloha Aina? Those people who love the land and who are steadfast in their love of the land. And I, I know it sounds a little bit like you know, out in left field, but. I was I was just like I don't think of myself as a separatist. I just mm-hmm. know that I'm Hawaiian and that I have a real genuine love for the land and that 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 kind of dictates my actions and the way that I do things even within my role as as a representative of the state agency. You know, I only know mm-hmm. I don't know what the separatism thing is. I only know what, what it means to to love the land. Uh-huh. It was What did he say back? I, he was just like, "Oh, well, that's not what I meant. And I was like, no, I know that's what I mean. You know? And yeah. I was like, that was weird. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it was just, it was weird. But then it, it kind of honed in and, and solidified in my head that, oh, yeah, you know, if you're going to be, if you're going to be Hawaiian and this is what you're going to do, then you're always going to open yourself up to a different level of scrutiny. So you just got to be prepared mm-hmm. for that. I was like, right. okay, well, you know, game on. I can do this. I can do this. Yeah. Um, and so that that was just like one, I mean, one time when I was like, damn, I'm on the continent. I'm not in Hawaii where, you know, I'm comfortable and it's okay for, for me to say things and then people will understand. I ha- I'm on the continent and people have a different 
perspective. They have a different kind of attitude about just about things in general and and I have to be prepared to answer that but not be really mean about it you know you gotta kind of you gotta understand and and kind of nod your head and be like oh yeah okay I don't quite agree with your perspective but you know that's okay I I can we can still be friends we can still have this dialogue and just do it we 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 always say you know we do everything with aloha and so you can disagree, but you can still be respectful and have a law for, for the person that you're disagreeing with. Although they might not feel the same way about you, but that's okay. You know, it's okay right. because people are who they are and we can't expect them to be anything other than themselves. And that's kind of the, the way that I navigate the challenges in school and the challenges of being an Indigenous person. I will say also that being Hawaiian and being an archaeologist and working for the state agency and that's responsible for historic preservation comes with a huge set of responsibility. And mm-hmm. my friend who works out of the Hilo office, who works for our division, he and I have multiple like conversations about the, the responsibility we feel to our community, first of all, and then the responsibility we feel legally as representatives of the State Historic Preservation Division. So always trying to balance our love for the community with the fact that there are certain things that we have jurisdiction over within the State Historic Preservation Division, and then there are some things that we completely have no jurisdiction over, which can be upsetting to community, but it's something that, you know, we have to make really clear. Sometimes mm-hmm. people will say, well, you're Hawaiian, so you should be able to hook, an- hook another Hawaiian up. And it's like, no, the the rules and the regulations we are, you know, entrusted to uphold and enforce do not allow for anybody to play a race card at any time. So... Mm-hmm. And that's really tough. It's really tough to to kind of just tell people up front, you know, I'm sorry, but this is what needs to be done because this is what historic preservation law and process dictates. Um, mm-hmm. But and then that's just from the state agency side. From the school side, people always ask me like, oh, what's your big goal after getting your MA? Do you want to go on to a PhD? And I, I think I would like to actually may not take space between the MA and the PhD and just go right into it if the university will let me do that and if the administrator here will allow me to um to do, you know, my PhD maybe one course a semester or something like that. Because it's it is very easy to get a good job and stay gainfully employed with an MA. But really, the types of decisions and when you get to the point where you have a PhD and you can make and create and craft projects based on your, you know, personal convictions and the things that you want to see done and the things you want to incorporate, you can't really do that with an MA. You have to have a PhD in order to to argue for things like including cultural protocol in your program and making sure that there's cultural sensitivity, cultural sensitivity training for students and for staff. 
that can only come if you have a PhD. I mean, granted, I'm already afforded kind of that that leeway to to do protocol and to make that part of our daily practice when we got into the field. At least I was at this last field school. But it's not always going to be like that. And it hasn't ever been like that until relatively recently, within the past five, seven years. You know, cultural protocol is a part of what you do when you go out into the field and you engage in archaeology. You do cultural protocol before you get out into the field to let, I mean, to to let not only the, the forces that be out there, let them know that you're out there, also bearing in mind that this place was once home to previous generations of Hawaiians who lived worked and probably died on this aina and so if you can bring some honor to the place by saying the names of the wind saying the names of the rain naming out the different mountains and looking out at the ocean and talking about the clouds that come over during the certain times of day you know that's something that kind of prepares you to be out on on that land and engaged in archaeology and hopefully will help students better understand that you don't do archaeology just so that you can go dig a hole. You know, you're really honing in on specific types of methodology to collect data and data about the life ways of people in the past. So hopefully, you know, that's something that we can continue to do as a community and we can continue to to be a part of shaping in every community that we go into to do work. So, okay, these protocols, this is really, really, really interesting. Is Are these from the state? I mean, are they implemented through the state or like at a community level, it sounds like you might mm. be saying? Um, yeah, it's, it's more at a community level. And it's... So, the protocol, like protocol is not really a part of anything of what we do at the state. Luckily for me, so here's the, the uniqueness of, of like my position and kind of like my whole work here at the State Historic Preservation Division. Although I have background in archaeology and I have Hawaiian language background and cultural practitioner backgrounds as well, I don't actually work for the archaeology branch. I work for the history and culture branch. Mm-hmm. which my role specifically is to to deal with uh, ivi kupuna or human skeletal remains and kind of mitigate all of these different circumstances surrounding the discovery and the disposition of human skeletal remains. So I'm lucky in that sense that, you know, I don't work for the archaeology branch. I don't mean that in any derogatory way because archaeology branch is amazing. They have amazing staff. And I have much respect for everything that they do. But I, I work for the history and culture branch and archaeology branch comes and consults with me. So when I'm afforded opportunities to do archaeology, for example, in this field school that I was just a part of earlier in June, I took a break from my job here to do this field school with a friend of mine at the university. He's a new professor. And then I told him kind of, you know, it would be great if we could do protocol or it would be great if we could reach out to the community before we go out there and kind of talk story and stuff. And he was totally open 
to it. And then Mm -hmm. after talking to another one of my colleagues who works in the Philippines, he's my colleague who works in the Philippines. He's from Indiana, but then he has a colleague who's from the Philippines and works very closely with the communities out there. And so his colleague in the Philippines kind of provides that cultural sensitivity approach, which is basically the like the same thing that I I afforded for this field school. Just kind of, you know, yes, we're we're going out here to do archaeology, but we really need to be aware that there are certain things that could happen and, you know, we have to protect the crew from, you know, the real threats of like being stung by bees or being overwhelmed by asthma because the fog is really, really thick one day. Um, But also the things that you can't see and the things that people don't usually take into account spiritual mm-hmm. things and just protecting yourself that way and it, it's the same way when I go and I do recoveries or or when I'm involved in any kind of human skeletal remains recovery here mm-hmm. in my job you know we have every person has their own set of protocols we don't really like we don't ever get together and discuss what protocols we do or what we don't do. We just have our own individual set of protocols. Okay. So you do okay. that, you know, okay. yeah, you just kind of go out there and you do that to protect yourself. But then mm-hmm. the one thing I can say that pretty much we all have in common is that we apologize. We apologize that like skeletal remains were exposed the way that they were. It's always you come at it that way because Really, when someone is buried, they don't ever intend on being disturbed or their family never intended for that person to be disturbed again. So whether they're disturbed through like natural causes or through, you know, monitored construction and and then, you know, the bucket kind of clips one of the bones, that is a huge reason for us to go out there and just ask for forgiveness and then try to protect protect in place to the best of our possibility to the best of our um, abilities I should say so and then protecting yourself once you leave that place because you don't want something to accidentally latch onto you and then you take that home and it becomes part of you part of your family and part of your family's family etc etc so just having those protocols in place for ourselves and then that and then that also goes back to the whole you know, like being indigenous and, and um, being engaged in this type of work. Like, is it silly? I used to, so I, sometimes I used to drive myself nuts just thinking, am I being silly by doing these practices? No, I'm not, because I feel like I'm protecting myself. And this is what my kuna would have done too. You know, my ancestors would have done the same thing. After they bury someone, they would do the same type of ritual, the same type of protocol. And that's not silly. It's a culture of practice, and it's like that to protect yourself and to protect your family. So, granted, people may think we're silly, but I'm like, well, I think it's important for us to protect ourselves. And if you know how to do that, then you should do that, not only for yourself, but for everybody else that's with you. Because if you don't do that, and then something happens, you could potentially be the person held responsible for that. Maybe not physically responsible, but spiritually responsible. And nobody wants that kind of bad juju on them. Right, right. 
And I mean, for the record, everybody, I mean, there's all kinds of, of superstitions that, you know, mainstream U.S. has about death. And we do all kinds of things that looking at them from the outside seem silly. So I'm sure that it is not silly what you're doing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, it's, it's not. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really, yeah, it's just really, it makes sense. You know, if you deal with that all the time and I've, I've seen perfectly like you know people who have done it for years people who have held or, I mean who have taken care of Ibikupuna for years like I've seen them get overwhelmed with emotion and right. it's like oh yeah you know yeah something's happening just let it happen let it happen and then after it passes then you know you do the cleansing and you say you chant what you need to chant to to be done with that and to close that off right. because it, it, it can be like already the work that we do is really um, it's not draining. I, I don't like to say the word draining. It's, it's, I, I don't really know how to say it. It's like rewarding work. It, it is really rewarding, but it's also a very heavy kind of responsibility because you're right. not only dealing with, you know, the living, but you're dealing with the dead and the disposition of the dead, and you're the person responsible for making the right decision. Right. That can be really stressful. But if you're, you know, righteous and your na'al, you know, your core being is in the right place, then you will always be guided to the best possible outcome. Or if not the best possible outcome, you will come up with a solution that will work. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's, that's just, it's amazing when it, when it happens, when it doesn't happen, then you're kind of like, mm, okay, what happened? You know, and then you really reevaluate the situation and try to come up with a different solution. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, on that note, <laughs> we are at our second break and wow, cool. I know, <laughs> um, but when we come back, I, I really want to ask you some more things kind of kind of related to what you were just talking about so everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Okay, so we're back and I have a million bajillion questions for you. <laughs> but since we're on the topic of burial site mm-hmm. issues. I I do want to talk about specifically the Hawaiian law and how that differs from NAGPRA. And then, I mean, I think because it kind of has to go probably hand in hand with this discussion. I also mm-hmm. know that 
obviously the the situation in Hawaii with with tribal consultation is very different than the mainland with Native Hawaiian organizations versus um, tribes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, could you possibly talk about the some of the the big differences both okay. with like with yeah, basically with tribal good. consultation and burial issues? Okay, so I'm I'm not as familiar with the tribal consultation as as, as it applies to burial issues, but I do know that every tribe has its own perspective on burials. Here in Hawaii, we have pretty specific burial rules. I want to say, well, they are specific in that the law is very clear, but then the law also does afford for flexibility in basically all things. There's flexibility in engineering a solution. There's flexibility in who is involved in the consultation process as to disposition or treatment of the remains that are in question. I will say, though, that, you know, NAGPRA kind of has an open and a closing for consultation, which we kind of have here in Hawaii. But but we also don't we don't like exclude people. I'm, I'm not sure if NAGPRA does that actually. I don't think it. Well, I guess if you're recognized, if you're a rec- federally recognized tribe, then you are included. Versus if you're not federally recognized, then you may not be included. Right. Um, right. Exactly. Yeah. For us, uh, when it comes to human skeletal remains, we have a what we call a recognition process. So. With NAGPRA, you have to be a DOI identified like consulting party, right? And you have to be on the list. So the NHL list with the DOI right right now, the NHO is Native Hawaiian Organizations. I think it has something like 41 pages. You wow. have organizations that maybe have, you know, like 100 plus members, like a civic club, a Hawaiian civic club. Um, maybe has like anywhere from 15 to maybe 50 members. And then you have the affiliation of Hawaiian civic clubs or the association of Hawaiian civic clubs, the AHCC, which is basically the umbrella for all of these civic clubs. Sorry, I'm kind of getting off the the perspective here, but no, 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 this is perfect. Yeah. So, so AHCC has like, you know, hundreds of members. And they're, they're, of course, an NHO. Then you have NHOs that are families, like specific to one place. So it's a small group of people that are lineal descendants of a particular person or heirs to the estate or what have you. And then our rules, Hawaii Administrative Rules 13300, those are our burial rules. And the recognition process for for that is there's basically two, well, the recognition process is the same, but there's two types of discoveries. The first of human skeletal remains occurs during archaeological inventory survey. And so those are called, those are what is considered, what are considered previously identified. So say hypothetically, like a a bank wants to put in a new branch somewhere in downtown Honolulu. Then in advance of construction, they would go out and we would recommend, well, the State Historic Preservation Division would recommend 
conducting an archaeological inventory survey so that you know what's there on the land. So you go in, you start your field work and stuff, and then you find a cluster of remains. And they're all in, in situ remains, you know, like traditional burial positions. And so that way you know, you know that that is there on, on the property that you hope to develop, right? Then the disposition and the decision on how to treat those remains goes before our burial councils which are established by the 13300 rules and then also our Hawaii Revised Statute 6E43. And so so you have like this process for discussing burials and discussing through consultation what is the most appropriate thing to do. With the previously identified burials, people a burial notification gets published in the paper following the discovery during the AIS. People will see that notification and then they will send in applications which we have um, that's part of our state historic preservation division burials program process as well so they'll download an application they'll send in their information to me which includes like their in some cases their genealogy to show how they're related um, to perhaps families that lived within the area and then our department will make a recommendation on their recognition, but ultimately the decision to recognize or not recognize an individual, a family, or like the whole family falls to the burial council, but we give the recommendation. And then for um, what we call inadvertent discoveries or discoveries that are found during monitored excavation or unmonitored excavation, or like just natural erosion. Like we recently had some king tide events here that were kind of crazy. Those come to the disposition of the department. So the burials program handles and exercises jurisdiction over those. But we also reach out to descendants of the area to have them kind of tell us what, or not tell us, but have them involved in the process to see what is most you know what the cultural practices of that area are because it really varies from from place to place from district to district definitely from island to island i mean huge differences and then even within districts like certain families had different practices and one family in an ahupua'a may have completely different practices from another family in the same ahupua'a within the same district so we kind of we we try as much as possible to include descendants or people who have are longtime community members from certain areas. If there's a discovery in their area, we reach out to them and say, hey, you know, there, recently there was an inadvertent discovery over here. And we are thinking as a department, you know, we have jurisdiction over it, but we're thinking about doing this. What do you think or, or how would you treat this? Sometimes we even say, what do you think about this? We'll just seem like, how would you treat this? And then, you know, we consult with them. So that's one thing that's really good about the way that the burial law is written. It allows for this kind of collaborative process for the project proponents, the landowner, cultural descendants, and then the burial council, and all of these other entities to be involved in crafting a solution 
that is pretty much agreeable to all people. And if it's not agreeable, then we try to find a common ground in which we can start from so that the, the solution does become agreeable to all people who are involved. Granted, sometimes you'll have, and it's the same thing with Nagpur, yeah, you'll have like one family or maybe one tribe that wants to do things this way and then one entity that wants to do things that way and then there can never be an agreement but with NAGPRA whatever it is they're bickering over or they're fighting over that stays with whatever entity is holding on to it for us we try as much as possible to come to a solution and if if you know parties can't agree then we'll create a solution I will mm-hmm. say well here's what we think and in some cases, like especially in cases that the burial council has jurisdiction over, if the burial council doesn't like the solution, then they will they will just come out and say, no, nope, you guys need to go back to the drawing board and try again. This is what we want to see. And so mm-hmm. they really exercise a lot of authority. Um, whereas for us, we really try to work with the consultants and with the community to come up with a solution that works for the community because especially in stuff and in, in cases that are in communities, it's in the community's backyard. You know, I can't be out there like three, four times a week to be sure that that platform stays in place. The community has this, this real sincere responsibility to take care of Ibi Kupuna. And if, if that's what, is the most workable and, and like workable solution for them, then we'll probably go with the most workable solution for them, provided it's something that we can support. That is fascinating. It's really, really interesting to see the differences yeah. in the way that you do it in Hawaii and versus on the mainland. Yeah, and then the other thing too is that NAGPRA, I mean, I don't want to say that, that NAGPRA is like a really great solution for tribes either, because it I mean, I don't personally. I don't know what what the issues tribes have with Nagpra are, but I can say that here in Hawaii, Nagpra is a completely different. Like, it it has just basically stopped consultation in its tracks. The one case that we have ongoing from about the late '90s into probably about 2007, maybe 2006 is the Marine Corps Base Hawaii in Kaneohe, in that there were families. So basically, and I'm going to totally mess up the history. I'll have to get back to you on the history. But Marine Corps Base Hawaii is situated on this beautiful sand dune in Kaneohe. The sand dune was also home to this huge population of Hawaiians, pre-contact Hawaiians. And... For lack of a better word, the occupational layer there is amazing. It's just an amazing place archaeologically and culturally significant. When the military came in and they started doing work in like the 30s, they started unearthing all kinds of human skeletal remains. And then Bishop Museum served as a repository for that because a lot of the work was being done through Bishop Museum. And so Bishop Museum became the repository for all of those remains. These just kept like piling up. I mean, it's probably up to about 1400 now. And, you know, the families, 
when NAGPRA came about, then the museum had to come out and be like, okay, well, yeah, we have this inventory of human skeletal remains. And so the claimants came out, families, civic clubs, what have you. And the Marine Corps was really open, and they're still very open to working with the community in engineering a solution. And the Marine Corps picked a location, and and then most of the, in fact, I think all of the, all of the families or all of the consulting parties were happy with that. But where they disagreed was how to go about the protocol of reburying. Some of them wanted to rebury in kappa. Some wanted to rebury in muslin. They could never agree on how they were going to rebury. And so because of that, the the whole consultation process came to a complete halt. And as far as I know, the facility is still available for the reburial. It's just because there is no way forward in creating, you know, this reburial protocol that meets all of the the claimant's requirements and they can't agree to it that all of the skeletal remains are still out of the ground and that's a big problem for for entities like the OIBC not not legally but you know we don't like to have human skeletal remains out of the ground for a long time the faster they can get out they can get into the ground the better. And for some of these cases at Mokapu, they've been out since the 30s and 1930. So it's going on, you know, like 80 something years, pretty much going to be like 90 something in a couple years. Mm-hmm. So, so that's one case in which NAGPRA really did not help to, to get remains reburied. Right. Do you think that there's something based on the Hawaiian law that if it was different in NAGPRA, that the situation might have gone better? Or, you know, just other ideas, totally. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe, but... And, you know, a lot of people think, oh, it's a Marine Corps base, and it's like, no, actually, it's not. They have facilities. They have facilities picked out already. They have a place where, you know, it's, like, ready. It's just not... it's, It's the the arguing claimants that can't get it together. And recently <laughs> in one of our meetings, we brought this up again. Um, and then one of the audience members, who's a longtime culture practitioner in dealing, you know, taking care of Ibikupuna, she said, oh yeah, you know, the claimants are, they're dying. They're dying. And, and if when they're dead, then, you know, then all of those concerns that they had and all of the things that they stopped, those are all just going to go away. And then we can go ahead and rebury them. And I was like, oh, my goodness, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I totally, I, I see how difficult of a situation that, that is. But, right. I, oh, man, it's just tough. It's one of those things where, you know, you can you can have a solution, but then unless people don't agree, I mean, unless well, since people don't agree, the solution can never be pushed through. So right, right. Oh man, it's, yeah. So that's a that's one that I I quote often, or that I, mm-hmm. I kind of mention when people are like, "Oh, Nipah is such a big success." I'm like, "Well, yeah, and maybe on the continent, but here in Hawaii, it's been a real challenge. It has been it's been a challenge." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's definitely it it has it's an amazing law in many ways and has very big challenges and, and has caused problems yeah. in other ways. So it's it's a complicated one. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, it is. I, I'm very glad it's on the book, though, I have to say, because right. exactly. it makes what we do, especially when federal agencies, you know, have jurisdiction of the land. It makes what we do a little bit easier in that we kind of provide support voluntarily if federal agencies want us to be involved. The only exception is if we have a cooperative management agreement plan with the federal agency, then, you know, we're as much responsible as the federal agency. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's some federal agencies that that aren't quite sure what NAGPRA means in terms of disposition of human skeletal remains on on federal land. And I should also point out that federal land, it's a federal lease because it's still state land. <laughs> It's still state land, but the federal government has a lease from the state to use that land. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I may have to research that a little bit. I was a little bit too confident in my answer there. But <laughs> um, as far as I understand, because when I look at DOD properties, you know, I'm like, well, uh-huh. it may be DOD, but, you know, it's still state land. Right. Um, yeah. That's a big uh, like I like to point that out to people. I'm like, well, you know, it's still state land. The federal government right. buy it. They're leasing it from us. Huh. Yeah. That yeah, is it's, interesting. It's complicated. Right. But so that then, that basically means that it's still your jurisdiction in a I mean, yep. in large part. Wow, that's yeah. that is complicated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's sure. It sure can be. Mm. And so it goes, it also, that also goes back to the whole idea of aloha aina. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. If you, if you really say you're, you aloha aina or that you love the land, then do you understand that that federal property that is now a circle Superfund site is still state land? Right. Because it may be a circle Superfund site, but it's still state land. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, talking about this this love of the land that you mm-hmm. mentioned before, let's go to another specific topic that, like I, I mentioned, we do hear about uh, over here on the mainland with, with Hawaiian cultural resources, mm-hmm. and that's the, the telescope at it's Mauna Kea. Is that how you say it? Mauna Kea. Yep, Mauna, Mauna Kea. Kea. Okay. Um, have you, could you tell us a little bit more about the the situation with the telescope? Okay, yeah, sure. I'm, I have, I haven't been in the loop lately. I know it's been a hot issue and I think the last of the hearings was just maybe a couple of weeks ago. I'll get back to you on that for sure. And if I'm wrong on that, then I'll mm-hmm. correct my story. Okay. Um, but, but the yeah, Mauna Kea, okay, yeah, I was gonna go say ahead. just basically the. I mean, I'm not sure that everyone here has heard about it, so more of a basic overview for people that don't know the situation. Okay, sure. Mm-hmm. So TMT is the telescope that was being that is. I think it's still being slated for construction on Mauna Kea. It's this 
big 30 meter telescope. It's supposed to be cutting edge. And Mauna Kea is a very sacred place to Hawaiians. It's sacred for a number of reasons. Not only is it one of the highest peaks, but it's also home to five named pu'u, which are all um, five named cinder cones. And each cinder cone is its own akua, or god or goddess. There are also an incredible number of archaeological sites up there, including the Mauna Kea Ads Quarry, which is absolutely phenomenal. And then there's also burials up there. I mean, plenty of people just, you know, the, the common um, misconception here is that Hawaiians like to bury their dead in sandy areas because they were easy to dig. Um, no, sandy areas are easy to dig, but, you know, Hawaiians lived everywhere. Hawaiians had affinity for all of these places. Some of them were completely inaccessible or accessible to only a few. And Mauna Kea was one of those places, is still one of those places. It's extremely sacred and people are buried up there. And then you have all of these like archeological sites in addition to the burials, you have Ahu, you have these altars. And I'm not talking about the recent altars, but altars up there which we do think are burial platforms. And so it's just a, it's a fabulous place. I mean, if you ever have the chance when you're in Hawaii to go up there and just go up the road, you don't even have to go to the very peak. Even with the telescopes there that are there now, it's still very, very um, overwhelmingly beautiful. It's stark and it's just gorgeous. It's one of my favorite places. So with the telescope, the, the thing was that, you know, you have to go through all of these processes of getting your permits, and it's in conservation land also, so you have to have a conservation permit. You have to make the community aware of what type of work you're going to do, and the community has a right to comment on it, and if they're in opposition, then you have to you know, you have to take those opposition comments and include that in your, um, I think it was an EIS. But anyway, so there was community members who were opposed to it. It's just they were not ones that were contacted to provide comments on the construction of this telescope. And this dates back to, um, I want to say about 2007, perhaps before that even. I'll go back and, you know, I'll, I'll look through and be sure that my story's solid. And I'll talk to Greg Johnson because he, he really is a phenomenal help in this. So anyway, long story short, it seems like certain protocols for historic preservation and the processes that we have in place weren't always followed. And because of that, you know, we kind of weighed in, and when I say we, I don't mean me, because I don't usually work on Hawaii Island, except if it's like with this field school that I did with my friend Seth. But anyway, the the division weighed in with some comments, that basically said, no, we don't agree with this. You know, you have to go back, and Mauna Kea is a really sacred place. Maybe you should open consultation with additional parties. And it was just really tough, because then it became this, big issue, but it seems like certain corners were cut and 
deals were made in the back rooms and stuff. We don't really know what happened. We just know that we were not included mm-hmm. in in the decision. So when the decision came out, that oh no, you know we're gonna go ahead and build this. The community just like there was this huge uprising, and it wasn't a it wasn't a hateful or you know vengeful kind of uprising. It was like look. No, we don't think this process is right. We don't think you did it correctly. So we're going to go up here and we're going to protest. Yes, they did put rocks across the road, which perhaps wasn't the best thing to do. But they just peacefully protested down at Hale Pohaku, which is at 9,000 feet. It's like the visitor center. They set up a little camp over there and, you know, they they kind of, they they mobilized. And they stayed there, and they're still there. I mean, that camp is still there to today. And it was just this outpouring of of people who really do want to see the process followed correctly and who believe in the sacredness of this place and that it shouldn't be it shouldn't be um like sullied by another telescope. Granted, I can't even remember how many telescopes we have up there. But, like, some of them are falling into disrepair, and I think there are three that are completely not working. Those telescopes could be taken down altogether, and then a new telescope could go up in those locations. But they decided that TMT was going to be at this particular site because it was the best venue for looking into the sky from that angle. But, you know, it's like, well, you need to decommission these other telescopes that aren't working first. That was supposed to be part of the management plan, the Mauna Kea management plan, too. So that's another thing that the community was upset about. Well, why are you building a new telescope when you haven't decommissioned the ones that aren't working? And that makes sense, you know. It, it just It's just such a such a quandary, like how it got through the way it did and how the community concerns basically weren't heard mm-hmm. until they protested and then it became very, very visible and then it made international news and, you know, there it is. It's like Mauna Kea. And so you see, like, Kukia Imana all over the place now. Like, I'll be walking around with an Aloha Aina hat in, like, you know, Orlando and people will be like, yeah, man, Kukia Imana. <laughs> and I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> That's awesome. Wow, that's really okay. Yes. Yeah, it's it's really just galvanized the community here, mm-hmm. and then it's been it's been a touching point for for a lot of communities elsewhere that are engaged in maybe not the same thing, but you know that feel like their concerns aren't being heard. So now they're mobilizing. I shouldn't say now they're mobilizing, but mm-hmm. they're mobilizing and making themselves more visible. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash heritage voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org or you can find me 
on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Belenqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going Going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.